Hey, you're listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. In this week's sermon, Pastor Matt Dean preaches from John chapter 3 and 4 in our sermon series, Jesus, the Glory of Grace and Truth. Good morning. We are in week five of a series, I'm sorry, week four of a series called Jesus, the Glory of Grace and Truth. We're walking through John's gospel Um, This morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 22. So if you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn there. If you need a Bible, we have copies for you at the welcome desk, and you're uh, more than invited to pick those up after the service. But today, we pick up in John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Now, we've said uh, for the past few weeks that when John wrote this gospel, he had not just what Jesus said in mind, not Jesus what Jesus did in mind, but also were the implications of what his words and actions meant. And so this was just as much to help us see into the image of God, the likeness of God, his character and his attributes. It's not just a miracle, but it's what the miracles mean. So we talked about last week that for him to feed 5,000 people was not just because people were hungry, but because he is the bread of life. And so today we're going to see as he interacts with people who are sinning and struggling and losing heart, that it's not just the miracles that we see on the pages of Scripture, but what does it say about who God is, His nature, His attributes, and His character. So we're picking up in chapter 3, starting in verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and His disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where He spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Enon near Salem, but because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized, this was before John was put in prison. And an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, we had talked about this last week, that in this region on earth, there was a group of people called the Essenes, and they ceremonially would baptize people. It was a different baptism than being baptized by Jesus. This was a ceremonial purification cleansing. It was a cultural picture and norm in this area. And so this is one of the issues that's coming up. Verse 26, they came to John and said, Rabbi, the man who was with you, On the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified, well, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. In other words, people are going to him. Verse 27, to this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ. This is John speaking, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. And the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. And he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it, has accepted it, has certified that God is truthful. These are John's words saying, God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. I want us to say that out loud together. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That same idea came up last week. 
that whoever believes in the Son has life, and that whoever does not already stands condemned. You need to hear that this morning. Who believes in the Son, you have life. And if you don't, you stand condemned already. I love the idea, the the simplicity of verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Therefore, the Father has given Jesus, and you are in his hands. Your life is in his hands. For those of you that believe, your life is in the hands of the one that's been given everything. And you can trust that what gets filtered through those hands is from the loving Father. I want to be real clear about this. You would go on to see that not only John and Jesus would suffer greatly. And that's not the issue. Your comfort is not the issue. Your eternity and your security is strong and sure. And I spent uh, an evening in a hospital in Montgomery with a family member this week, and his eternity is sure. I've been on the receiving end of messages regarding cancer diagnoses, and that person's eternity is sure. Their comfort, not so much. In this moment, not so pleasant. Their eternity anchored in Jesus is your eternity anchored in Jesus. I'm not asking about your wealth. I'm not asking about your health. I'm not asking about anything related to your comfort level. I'm saying is your soul at rest with the God who made you? And do you have peace in your heart? Come what may through the filtered hands of God that he placed everything in his hands. Therefore, you as a Christ follower in his hands, do you know with peace in your heart that God is good and is for you and has made a way for you to have life in him forever? The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There's a heaviness and a weight to that, but there's also a glorious invitation to go, yeah, I want life. I want to see life. I want to behold the author and perfecter of life. I want to show you a photograph now this morning as we think through, isn't that beautiful? When we think about where Jesus did ministry, where he walked, this is where he walked. I took that photograph. And when we hear in the Bible that Jesus journeyed to and fro, it was through those mountains, through those hills. I want you to look at that because in those hills are robbers and thieves. In those hills are well-worn pathways. And we're going to see this morning in the Word of God that he would be walking a lot, miles and miles or kilometers and kilometers. He walked a lot. And he was fully human and fully divine. But the fully human side of him walking in that terrain for days on end, you would imagine hot and tired and thirsty. So let's pick up in John chapter 4 and let's see with the idea that whoever believes in him has life and whoever does not see him will not experience life. With that theology in mind, let's read this next story. John 4, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So he was in the south, and then he walked 20 miles-ish through that. Okay, so you, you see, this is not just like, I'm going to hop around the corner. Like, this was a journey. Now, he could have gone another way. 
He could have gone east of the Jordan, but instead he went straight through an area in this region that no good Jew would walk through. And in a few minutes you'll hear why. Now he had to go through Samaria, verse 4. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. For those of you that love Bible study and tracking these things down, write down these verses. Genesis 33, Genesis 48, and Joshua 24. And you can go on a rabbit trail and see why this land is so contested. You can see why in, in the end this would be a difficult place for any Jew to go. But it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He chose to go through Samaria, but he could have gone another way, just so you know. But he chose to do a three-day journey through what would be foreseen as not enemy, but kind of enemy territory. And this conflict between Jews and Samaritans was 400 years old, right? longer than our national history, was the enmity between these two groups of people. And it says that Jesus had to go to this place. It says, verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, look, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, so it would have been noon, okay? Now, Jesus is sitting at a well that's 100 meters deep. That's deep, okay? And he's sitting in a place that no Jew should really be in. And he did this on purpose. Listen to the next line, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. All right, now here, here's the setting that I want you to see. This is what one commentator said. For a rabbi to be seen speaking to a woman in public was the end of his reputation. Okay, we got that far? This was it, done. He said something to a woman, over. His reputation, gone. Think about this. This is God. And this is what he's doing. For a rabbi to be seen speaking to a woman in public was the end of his reputation. And yet Jesus spoke to this woman. She was also a woman of notorious character. We'll get to that in a moment. No decent man, no decent man, let alone a rabbi, would have ever been seen in her company or even exchanging a word with her. And yet Jesus spoke to her. Here was the Son of God, tired and weary and thirsty. He was the holiest of men listening to her with understanding and her sorry circumstances. Here was Jesus breaking through the barriers of nationality and orthodox Jewish customs. Here is the beginning of the universality. In other words, he gave his life for the world to believe. Here is God so loving the world, not just in theory, but in action. Think about someone you cannot stand. Think about someone with four centuries, is that even possible? Four centuries of hate between. Think about both sides of the table not being able to stand one another. Think about centuries of tradition. Think about the scandal that was at stake. Think about all that was, and this is what Jesus did. Right through it, right to it. You consider what Jesus has done to you. You put yourself into the story, and let's see what happens. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman came to him. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God 
And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, she did not understand yet what was happening. She knew her physical thirst. She knew her condition. He knew her condition. She knew her condition. He was thirsty. She was thirsty. He was tired. She was confused as to what was happening in this moment. And when Jesus is beginning to say, I can give you water that will change your life and would well up with eternal life, she's like, I want that. But she still did not understand. And then Jesus gets to the heart of the issue, verse 16. He said, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, it kind of stops here in this moment, but can you imagine the dialogue of being called out in that moment, not, notwithstanding all of the awkward cultural tension in that moment between these two people, but Jesus, with great Wisdom and insight cuts to the heart of the issue for her. She is a woman who, by every account, is surrounded by shame. And here is the king of glory in the midst of her shame saying, go get your husband. Sir, I have no husband. You're right. You don't. You've had five, and the guy you're with is not your husband either. And this is what she says. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Listen to Jesus' next words. He declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In a culture, North America, where worship is this kind of casual entry point into life, that's not what we see in the Bible, actually. Like, it it actually says that the Father seeks worshipers, that the Father seeks people who would worship him, declare his worth and glory in spirit and in truth. And so in case you're just waking up to this idea, you need to write beside your Bible, the Father is seeking worshipers. So it's not just, let's come and sing some songs. We can see later in the fullness of Scripture, the Father is seeking people whose life would be a whole life response to what Jesus has done and to who he is. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it speaks to worship. And so if you're new to following Jesus, I just want you to write somewhere, the Father is seeking worshipers. Those were Jesus's words. He's seeking people that would worship in spirit and in truth. And he is inviting this woman 
despite her sinful circumstances, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And there's not a whole lot of time between when he calls her out in sin and says, the father is seeking people to worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah, the Messiah called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And I love this next line. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. It's me. I'm him. I'm here. I know your story. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. We press pause on this moment. It says, just then the disciples returned and were surprised. That's an understatement. Were scandalized, but maybe it's a stronger statement. Then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? The story continues to build. It says, they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. He said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The main moment is this. He says, then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? They began to argue. Why, who brought Jesus? What? Right? They're not even paying attention to what's happening in this moment with the Samaritan woman. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now the, he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist preparing the way. Jesus is talking about the prophets that spoke generations before of what would happen when Jesus came. But look at the next line. Many, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him, Jesus, to stay with them. And he stayed two days. Look at the next line. And because of his words, many more became believers. Right, let's just pause for a moment and think about this. Some people say you have to get your life together before you talk about Jesus. That was not the case with this lady. And I just want to push back against your fear and insecurity and honestly, your sinfulness and mine to say, I'm not ready to talk about Jesus. Yes, in fact, you are. Because this woman was called out in adultery in a scandalous location cross-culturally from the king of glory named Jesus. And her testimony of what he did resulted in many people believing in him. I also want you to see the compassion. It says, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed two days. He is not too busy for you. He's not. He's the king of glory on a mission, and he manages his time perfectly. And your life matters to God. The details of your life matter to God. The struggles in your life matter to God. And let me just say, based on this story, the scandals of your life, the hardships and struggles 
and sadness in your life does not prevent him from coming to your life and speaking into your life in such a way that changes your life, and then your life begins to reflect the goodness of Jesus. So today is your day. If you came in struggling with secret shame, today is your day because he knows everything you've done and I've done, and he says there's different water for you. And if you drink from that, life will well up. And so stop making excuses like this woman could have made, like I can make too. He sees into your soul and struggle, and he says, here's water. Come to me. So don't, don't just hear that today. Look at what he has done. This is what John is trying to help us see with the specific details. He stayed, and because of his word, many more became believers. Hear that. Why? Because many more have been made in the image of likeness of Jesus, and many more have been bought with a price, and many more he is worthy of their worship and honor and praise. And it's not just so that these people, their lives get better. It's because he is worthy of their lives being better. He will make a way for their life to be better. Verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Now, this is in enemy territory. I mean, these are people that would not ever be around a Jewish person. And their cultural situation is not unlike other cultural situations around the world where decades and generations of deep-seated hate and animosity, validly so, if you look at the world, it's a deeply troubled place. Somehow in the middle of the story, we find hope that the gospel transcends sin and hatred and culture. The gospel transcends ethnicity and ethnocentricity. The gospel somehow speaks to the core of the issue. This lady was struggling with sin, and Jesus spoke into her. Then Jesus spent time with the people that were like her and many more believed. So you, child of God, bought by the blood of Jesus. You could go anywhere, actually, to anyone, regardless of any history, and speak the gospel of what Jesus has done with great authority and humility, because he's the one that breaks down these walls. He did it. He did it. After two days, he left for Galilee now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Verse 45. And when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. Verse 46. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee. That's where the water was turned into wine. But look at this. 20 miles away, 32 kilometers away, there was a royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. And this father, with a grieving, worried heart, heard that Jesus was doing something. And this father walked, ran, somehow got 20 miles to this place. It says, when this man had heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him, look, and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Now, here's the hard thing about this passage of Scripture. We want to read this and go, he will always heal. He does not. 
We want to read the scripture and go, let it be normative for every single time anyone is ever sick. It's just not the case. And somehow in this moment with this man, for whatever reason in the kingdom and purpose of God, this man came to him and begged him to come. My son is sick. In verse 48, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. And the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, verse 50, verse 50, you may go. Your son will live. That man took Jesus at his word. I'll just say that again. That man took Jesus at his word. That man took Jesus at his word. I just want to share a short story with you for a moment. Several years ago, uh, we were living uh, in northeast China. My son, um, Caleb, had this odd virus. I mean, it was just totally bizarre. And every night at 6 p.m., he would vomit violently like clockwork. And we could not figure out what in the world was going on. And days would pass, and days would pass, and days would pass. And we were living in a place at that moment where healthcare was a, a challenge would be an understatement. And as parents, we were concerned, why is he so sick? There was, we could not figure out what was going on. And so with a plastic bag in hand, we got in a taxi in this frozen place on earth, and we went to some friends whose wife happened to be a doctor. And this doctor and dear friend, she examined my son. And she said, I don't know what to tell you. I really don't know what's going on, but she's a highly competent physician. And she said, I, I don't, but these were her words. She said, I don't know what's going on, but our Father in heaven does. And so uh, we're just going to pray right now that he would just bring healing to your body for whatever is going on. And so there in this little apartment, she and her husband and I with Caleb, we just began to pray for him. Now, I've seen enough life to know that sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes God works through medicine and miracles and sometimes he does not yet at the end of the day, bless the Lord, his name is to be praised forever and ever. And in this moment, we were without an option. We were without a clue. We did not have another option. And so we simply said, God, he's yours. And so we're just asking you to bring healing to him. And to hear this Western-trained physician say, I don't know what's going on, but I know that he does. Therefore, we will pray and ask God to bring healing to him. She did. We did. I did. He did. And God did. And that night, it was done. Now, that's all I can say. God, in that moment, healed my son. And we were in a desperate place of needing something to change. And God brought about the change. Just take him at his word and praise him either way. Take him at his word, but praise him either way. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. And then the father realized that this was the exact time, the exact time at which Jesus said, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. You might want to underline that. So he and all his household believed.
This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. So what what is it here that, that John is trying to see? We see that Jesus is not daunted by scandal, right? We've already heard the Father loves the Son, has placed everything in his hands. We see Jesus cut through generations of hate and a very scandalous situation and say to her, there's a different way. We see that this woman with no training and no window of preparation became an evangelist of what Jesus had done. There was no time out for her. He called her out in sin. She said, you're right, and she began to talk about what Jesus has done for her. Those same people in her village began to see what Jesus could do. They begged him to stay. He did. He stayed, and many more believed. We see a worried father whose son was ill beg Jesus to bring healing to his son. And what did Jesus do in this situation? He brought healing to his son. He took him at his word. So I want to leave you today with these thoughts. Every believer, you, has a story to share, regardless of how long and how far removed you are from your scandal. Every one of you has something to say of what Jesus has done for you. And if I may just gently say, if you cannot articulate what Jesus has done for you, you may want to spend some time thinking what Jesus has done for you. I don't want you to feel like now that you're just this army of proclaimers, although that's kind of awesome to think about. You are a person with a story of what Jesus has done. And there are people who would love to hear what Jesus has done because it's likely they've yet to hear what he's done. What is left in your hands that you've failed to entrust Jesus with? Just think about it. What's left in your hands? What is it that you are holding on to? Are you holding on to your scandal? Are you holding on to worry? What is it that you are afraid to go, Jesus, this belongs to you? Do you know that eternal life is yours in Jesus? If there is a question to ask this morning, it's that. Do you know that your life is eternally sure in Jesus? Do you believe that God is worthy of your worship? Just be honest. Do you believe that God is worthy of your affection, of your life, of your time, of your resources, of your surrender, of your vocation, of your family, of your marriage? Do you believe that all of who you are belongs to him and that he is worthy to have all that? Do you believe that? Can you articulate what God has done for you? And can you articulate what God is doing in you? And if you can't, spend some time thinking about that. How do I say what he's done for me? Because this is what happens when we do. Our testimony begins to have power when we begin to think what he has done. And I'll just leave you with this very, very simple last question. Can you take him at his word? It says the father took him at his word and started back. And don't you know that as this worried dad took Jesus at his word, he is walking in faith back home. This this whole story, the reaping, the sowing, planting is done in faith, right? Harvesting is done in faith. There's no guarantee that the weather will be right, that a crop will yield its harvest. Right? Our, our sowing seeds is done 
in faith, but he's the Lord of the harvest, right? Our proclaiming what God has done is, is the privilege that we have, but he's the one that changes life. He's the one that's changing my life. He's the one that can change your life. I just want to give you a moment just to consider what are you still holding on to that you could entrust to him. We're so glad you listened to the Grace Auburn Church podcast. There's so much happening in the life of our church, and we could not be more excited about all that God is doing. For more information about ways that you can connect within the life of our church, go to our website, www.graceauburn.church. Thank you.